Um, well, it's wonderful to be here, and I thank John and uh, the church here at St. Stephen's for inviting my wife and I down. Could I just say, Melbourne is a fantastic place. I've lived here before. I lived here in the year 2000, three and a half months out of Point Cook for a bit of Air Force training, and I love coming into Melbourne. It's such a beautiful place, uh, and my wife loves the shopping. We don't get this sort of shopping in Lismore, let me tell you. All right, well, let me pray, and then we'll begin. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time and the place that you've put us. We know that this is not accidental, but part of your good plan and purpose for us. And we ask that you would help us to think clearly about how to live in this particular age at this particular time. Give me clarity and wisdom as I speak. And help us all, as John said, to think your thoughts after you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, I was born in a communist country a country without any meaningful freedoms. Uh, I mentioned before that country was Hungary in Eastern Europe. Now, I came out as a refugee when I was four years old, and we moved to Sydney and grew up there, so please don't hold that against me. But growing up in Sydney, we just loved it. We just loved the freedom, the freedom to be able to do what you want, to be able to criticise the government. And we noticed that the Australians around us, it was a national pastime. It was just fantastic. Couldn't do that back home in Hungary. Now, I became a Christian in year 11 of high school. I noticed there's, where's Jan? Year 11, right here, yep, at the back. Great time of uh, life where you're thinking about issues, certainly it was for me. And I quickly realised that being a Christian, well, at least at my time, it wasn't exactly considered cool. But hey, it was no big deal. I mean, the worst I felt was people calling me a Bible basher or that sort of thing, but that was it. Then after high school, I joined the army. And boy, if I thought I stood out a little for being a Christian at high school, that was nothing compared to being a Christian in the army. Let's just say that the Bible's view of uh, sexual ethics isn't held very highly by most soldiers in the army. Uh, but that was as bad as it got. I got ridiculed, uh, some jokes, some banter about, you know, Balog, what do you mean you don't believe in sex before marriage? Are you weird or something? You know, that was the sort of banter it was. Some raised eyebrows, but nothing serious. That was 1995. Fast forward 15 years later to 2010, and my view of our freedoms changed quite radically. I was a new uh, AFES worker, like our brother Pete over here, working on campus at Southern Cross University as a uni chaplain, uh, working with a Christian group on campus. And early February 2010, orientation week is about to kick off, and all of a sudden, we start getting these messages on our Facebook page. So we had a Facebook page for our Christian group, and these aggressive, inflammatory messages start appearing um, from this person. And they were demanding to know our views on homosexuality and on marriage, and whether we believe that gay people could be married. Well, we replied, we responded as generously as we could and said, we believe the Bible, we believe what the Bible says about marriage and sexuality, but Jesus died for all people, Jesus loves all people. Well, it didn't satisfy this particular person. Uh, this particular person, I'll call him Sam, he just got stuck into us on our Facebook page, uh, calling us right-wing, homophobic, narrow-minded, bigoted Bible bashers. I mean, I've got to hand it to him. This guy had his name calling down pat, just rolled off his tongue. What's more, even before I met him, he said on the Facebook page, he said, I'm coming to Lismore to get you kicked off campus. 
talking about me as a Christian chaplain. And I like to say to my wife, that was God introducing me to Christian ministry. Now, as it turned out, this Sam, uh, I did end up meeting him. Uh, He was a 45-year-old gay man, uh, a liberal Christian persuasion. And he'd actually turn up at our lunchtime group. Uh, It was quite interesting, actually. I knew that he'd be coming. And as I walked up to the university lecture room where we'd have our lunchtime group, I actually felt physically sick, knowing that I'd actually, you know, this guy would be confronting me. It was quite, quite confronting. Uh, While I was giving the talk, he'd make comments as I preached. Uh, This one time I preached on marriage on 1 Peter 3, that really set him off. Uh, And to cut a long story short, he put in a formal complaint to the university, a complaint about us as Christians. And as that process unfolded, as the university got back to me and said, hey, this formal complaint's been made, it actually felt like I had to prove my innocence and I was the guilty one. Uh, It felt like Sam was innocent and we Christians had to justify our existence, why we should be allowed on campus. It was just a bizarre experience. I thought, this is, am I really experiencing this? Now, to cut a long story short, we sorted it out. Uh, Rob, uh, Sam, sorry, he ended up leaving us alone and it uh, it was sorted within the first couple of months. But as someone pointed out to me then, Uh, university, what happens on university campuses doesn't stay on university campuses. And this was in 2010. And I thought to myself, man, if this is what's coming our way in eight to ten years, then, yeah, we're in for some interesting times. Eight years later, here we are. And I haven't kept in touch with my brothers and sisters from AFES, but I'm guessing that my experience on campus, if it happened today, it probably wouldn't sound as far-fetched and uh, crazy as it did back in 2010. I'm guessing perhaps here in inner-city inner Melbourne, uh, you're feeling the heat as much as any Christian in Australia. Uh, and it can be a little unnerving, can't it? It can make us feel a little uncomfortable. Especially if, like me, you've grown up knowing genuine freedom. And I think we can be caught a bit flat-footed We can think to ourselves, can this really be happening? All these cultural changes, changes that are making us feel under pressure, can this really be happening here in Australia? I mean, we're a relaxed, laid-back, free country, aren't we? What are we meant to do? What are we meant to do about this? Well, over the next three talks, I'll lay out my thoughts. Thoughts on how we should respond to living as Christians in a post-Christian age. Uh, In my first talk, we're kind of going to go on a bit of an exploration. So tonight's just setting the scene, exploring what the changes are. Uh, Tomorrow morning, second talk, I'll talk about how we can play a good defensive game, as it were, in terms of making sure that we hold on to the faith under pressure. And then finally, I'll talk about how we can get out and advance the cause of the gospel in my third talk, even as we we, uh, face opposition. So let's get into it. Let's understand now where 21st century modern Australia is at. So hopefully you've got the outline there. Um, If it's the same as uh, what I gave John, it should be big picture, our secular age. Now, so this is going to paint some big picture, the big wider picture of our culture. Now, if we're to understand our culture, we first need to see the world our non-Christian neighbour sees it. 
So let me introduce you to David. Now, David, imaginary character, but imagine he's a 31-year-old Anglo-Australian lawyer living just a few streets away. He lives with his girlfriend, Cindy, in their two-bedroom apartment. Uh, during their free time, they go to their local gym and hang out with friends. If you ask David about his life, he'd tell you, hey, he's very happy with it. Sure, he'd like to advance his career, make partner in his law firm, earn a higher wage, and he puts in the hours. But then if you asked him about that proverbial, you know, God-shaped hole in his heart, he'd look at you as if you were speaking Swahili. It doesn't even enter his consciousness that there's a God-shaped hole in his heart, let alone one that only God can fill. In fact, he doesn't even think about God at all. The sea he's swimming in, the universe as he understands it, doesn't have anything supernatural in it. He's living in what uh, a Canadian philosopher called Charles Taylor has called the imminent frame. Uh, kind of like if you imagine the universe as a box. If you can imagine I'm holding a box, a uh, closed-in box, with no God of any kind inside or outside of that box. Ain't nothing but the material world. That's Dave's universe. That's his belief about reality. Uh, in fact, it even goes beyond John Lennon. Remember John Lennon and his song, Imagine? Uh, I'm an off-key singer, so I'll spare you your eardrums. But I'll read it to you. You'll probably know it. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Now, David and his girlfriend, Sydney, Cindy, they don't need to imagine this. No heaven above us, no hell below us, above us only sky. That's the unquestioned belief they hold to. Which means that Dave's what's known as an exclusive humanist. Uh, so many around him here in the Western world believe the same things that Dave does. In other words, Dave believes that he can have a meaningful life, that he can have a purposeful life without having to appeal to God. He doesn't need God in his life to have meaning or purpose or happiness. No religion to make it meaningful. The question of God having to give his life meaning doesn't even enter into his head. But Dave's not alone in his views because anyone in the 21st century modern Western world is tempted to think like Dave, even us Christians. So let me ask you this. Do you sometimes find faith in God difficult? Do you sometimes wonder if Christianity is real? Do you perhaps even catch yourself wondering what it would be like to not believe in God? Well, if that's you, then you're normal. You see, in 1500, uh, 500 years ago or so, the sea that Europeans swam in was a God-centered one. God was just assumed to be real. The universe was inhabited by angels and demons. It was, to quote Charles Taylor again, an enchanted universe. The spirit world was just all around us. That was just taken for granted. You didn't have to try hard to imagine it. It was just the way everyone saw the universe. But that's all changed now. Uh, with the advent of what's known as the Enlightenment, that broad intellectual movement that questioned and rejected large, large parts of Christianity, our society began moving away from God, from believing in God. 
And so the universe was no longer believed to be enchanted, not by spiritual beings, not by God, not by any supernatural being at all. But, and this is one of Charles Taylor's big ideas, we live in what's known a cross-pressured age. A cross-pressured age. Uh, yes, it's a secular age, but not the sort of secular age that you hear about from the new atheists like Richard Dawkins. We don't live in an a-religious age, a neutral, unbiased, objective age, which is what many people assume by secular. The world minus religion, as it were. Instead, we live in an age where it's like walking across a bridge. Now, I don't know if you've ever been across one of those footbridges, you know, just where only you can walk across. It's a suspension bridge, and it's swinging side to side. Um, <clears throat> and it's, I don't know if you can imagine the sensation. You're on this bridge, and especially if it's across a gorge, and there's a wind blowing to and fro. Uh, the wind's blowing all around you, first pushing you in one direction as you're holding onto the bridge, then pushing you in another. Cross-pressured, as in blown about, this way and that, in different directions. Now that idea of being blown about in different directions, uh, first push one way, then the other, uh, that's what many people feel on the inside in today's secular world. On the one hand, we feel that the universe is a closed universe, disenchanted, nothing supernatural about it. That's what Daves of the world believe. But on the other hand, many people, including the Daves of the world, they have a sense that there's got to be more to life, that there's got to be more to life, that we have to be more than just atoms stuck together, that perhaps there's some greater meaning to the universe above it all. Now, this doesn't mean that Dave and Cindy are going to come to church anytime soon, although perhaps they might. More likely, they'll start getting into various forms of art, the art gallery, the museum, uh, concerts, uh, taking part in Anzac Day dawn services, maybe even a quote-unquote pilgrimage to Gallipoli. Art, music, even sacred cultural events. These are ways to express or tap into those feelings of being cross-pressured, feelings that there has to be deeper meaning that are beyond what a cold, empty, atheistic universe offers us. In fact, just the other week, I was talking to a Christian friend, a guy called Sam Chan, and he was telling me, that he went to this parenting seminar by a guy called Steve Bidolf. Um, now, Steve Bidolf, well-known parenting guru, he was there presenting with a, another expert, a female expert. Uh, and, and this female expert, she was saying that the universe gives us the children that the universe knows we need. The universe gives us what it knows we need. Now, this was in a purely secular parenting seminar. And here they are talking about the universe as a provider, as something that looks out for us. Or to put all of this another way, our modern secular age is haunted. Not in a literal poltergeist, ghost walking through the wall sort of way. It's haunted by feelings, feelings of there being something more, something greater, something above and beyond atoms and matter some transcendent meaning of some description. We live in a cross-pressured, haunted age. So that's the big picture. Non-Christians in the West just assume that we live in a closed universe, an imminent frame. They don't feel the need for God, 
and yet their lives are cross-pressured. They feel haunted by feelings that the, there has to be more to this universe than just this universe. And so they look to art, music, cultural events to give them that sense of meaning and purpose which they feel is missing. Or as one atheist put it this way, he said, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Now that we've got the big picture, let's start getting a bit more specific about what people believe. And so now we'll drill down into the belief of individualism and authenticity. So hopefully the next point. So what is individualism? I'm sure you've all heard of that term before. Who wants to have a go at defining it? Anyone want to give me a rough definition of what individualism is? Yes. I'm an individual just like everyone else. Yep, a lot of truth to that. Okay, any other ideas? I'm an individual and the main purpose is to look after myself. Yep, I think those two uh, kind of nail it. Now, individualism, it's about the value of thinking for yourself. It's about your uniqueness as an individual, about your rights, about your individual values. Uh, now, before the 1960s, individualism, uh, it was around, it's been around for a long time in the West, but there was a tension. There was the idea of, yes, you had your rights, but you need to balance your individual rights with what tradition says, with what wider society needs, with what wider society thinks. So the individual was considered valuable, but so were external authorities like parents, churches, governments, traditions. And so before the 1960s, it was all about getting that balance right, making sure that individual rights were balanced against the wider rights of other collective organisations, not going too far in one direction or the other. But from the 1960s on, this changed. From the 1960s, individualism basically became about a particular type of freedom, namely freedom from, freedom from external authority and tradition, all of it. True freedom meant freedom from your parents, meant freedom from church authorities, from governments, from traditions. And you saw this as the baby boomers came of age in the 60s. No offence to baby boomers, but they were the ones that really brought it through. So you have the anti-Vietnam War demonstrations, the anti-censorship movements. Freedom became freedom from all external authorities. It became, individualism became radicalised in the way that was never seen. Now, according to an author and psychiatrist called Glyn Harrison... Uh, individualism took another turn in the 1970s. He says that in the 1970s along came pop culture and the new therapy culture of the 70s. Uh, Self-expression was transformed from a mindless act of defiance and it became a moral quest. It was no longer freedom for freedom's sake. It was freedom for the sake of authenticity and becoming your true self. Uh, Harrison continues... This moral quest isn't simply about being honest about your inner feelings and thoughts. It is saying that when you express these inner feelings truly, authentically, you work with the grain of who you really are. Expressing your inner self in this way, being who you really are, is about being fully human. It is your moral duty. 
So if you want to be authentic as a human being, from the 1970s on, all through today, if you want to be authentic as a human being, then you need to express and live out how you feel on the inside. That's what it means to be an authentic human being. Now, I'm sure you can think of specific examples which this is just taken for granted now. Uh, your career, it's all about you. So up at uh, the university where I worked, uh, Southern Cross University, they had an advertising slogan and the advertising slogan was, it's all about you. Uh, you can think of examples to, of course, sexuality, gender, uh, people uh, that uh, others hang out with, things they say. Being fully human is now all about being authentic, living according to your inner thoughts and desires, no matter what they are. Now, in 2010, actress Julia Roberts starred in that box office hit movie, Eat, Pray, Love. Uh, it was based on a best-selling memoir by, I think, an actress called Elizabeth Gilbert. Have a listen to what it's about. Uh, Elizabeth Gilbert had everything a modern woman is supposed to dream of having, a husband, a house, a successful career. Yet like so many others, she found herself lost, confused and searching for what she really wanted in life. Newly divorced and at a crossroads, Gilbert steps out of her comfort zone, risking everything to change her life, embarking on a journey around the world that becomes a quest for self-discovery. In her travels, she travel, discovers the true pleasure of nourishment by eating in Italy, the power of prayer in India, and finally and unexpectedly, the inner peace and balance of true love in Indonesia. Did you hear that? What was Elizabeth Gilbert searching for? She was searching for herself. She was trying to find her authentic self, that quest for self-discovery, to find her authentic inner self and to live that out. Now, this idea that you are your internal desires, it's actually not a new belief. It's actually been around for quite a long time. And there's this ancient belief called Gnosticism uh, where it, we first saw it appear thousands of years ago. Now, Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis or knowledge. Uh, it was an ancient belief or beliefs that was around in the Greco-Roman world but continued in some form today. Now, according to Gnosticism, the material world is essentially evil, some ugly outcropping of the fall or of malevolent gods. And so the so-called natural distinctions in the world, such as the difference between male and female, well, they're just deceptions. They're evil deceptions. Uh, the structure of the family, another evil deception. Or that there's some order to sexual relations, are these are best an illusion or at worst a corrupted deception that we need to shake off? All of this belongs to the outer world of society and religion, indeed even the outer world of your own body. And so what should we do? How do we find freedom? Well, we need to free ourselves from these external, external uh, deceptions, these externally imposed deceptions. We need to find the escape hatch called gnosis or wisdom. And so in Gnosticism, wisdom is all about being liberated from these false impressions from this material world. It's all about rebelling against the natural order that's around us, rebelling against externally imposed gender forms, family norms, even physical norms. That's Gnosticism. The external natural order is evil 
and freedom comes from rebelling against it. Now, both Gnosticism and the radical individualism of today believe that the true self, who you really are, is found by looking within you. And both Gnosticism and radical individualism share a revolt against the external, against the body, against nature itself. True identity is found by looking within and to hell with everything that's external. Is that sounding familiar at all? Now, from God's perspective, Gnosticism and the radical individualism, they're fighting against reality. Uh, they're fighting against God and his good order. Uh, in the words of Romans chapter 1, verses 21 to 22, the Gnostic and the radical individualist uh, neither glorified God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Now, this war against reality, the war that radical individualism has brought into our world, that Gnosticism has brought into our world, this war against reality has massive implications for how we think about sexuality, about gender, and about identity. So, for example, according to the New York Times magazine, 2015 was the, quote, year we obsessed over identity. Uh, in December 2015... Uh, a transgender father of seven children reportedly left his wife and family in Toronto to start life as a six-year-old girl. Yes, you heard that right. A transgender man leaving behind his family, starting life as a six-year-old girl. A few months earlier than that, Rachel Dolezal, a 37-year-old white civil rights activist, uh, she was accused by her parents of falsely portraying herself as black, yet continued to insist that she still identified as black, even though she was white. And now we even have trans-speciesism. Uh, in 2016, a 20-year-old Norwegian woman said she was a cat who was born into the wrong species. Now, I'm not giving you these examples so we can mock these individuals. Uh, we have no idea of the personal stories that lie behind them. At the very least, we need to be compassionate. But they do illustrate one of today's most influential ideologies. And that, thanks to radical individualism, thanks to Gnosticism, is that you get to decide your identity and no one else does. You get to decide your identity and no one else does. So in the past, when it came to identity, you were kind of like handed at your identity. Uh, you were an Australian-born Chinese girl living in Melbourne of middle-caste background. That was your identity, and you had to make the best of it. But now, today, we're encouraged to discover our identity within or create our own identity based on how we feel on the inside, even if it means choosing a different gender, choosing a different race, or even choosing a different species. That's what it means to be authentic. That's what it means to be truly you. That's the age of authenticity. Now into this world, into this world of individualism, of this rebellion against external authorities, rebellion against the body, came the sexual revolution. The sexual revolution. So radical individualism and its Gnostic influence made the sexual revolution possible. 
It made possible the complete unshackling of sex from marriage and babies. Uh, no longer was sex to be had within the confines of a lifelong monogamous heterosexual marriage. Now, sex itself was a key part of your identity, a key part, key way of you to express your inner feelings, your inner identity. Even if, or especially if, this meant rejecting all forms of repressive external authority, especially tradition and religion. This sexual expression was how you became authentic, how you became a healthy, flourishing human being. Radical individualism made the sexual revolution possible. And so it's worth understanding the storyline behind the sexual revolution, why it captured the imagination of our culture. What's the story that hooked everyone? What made and what makes the sexual revolution so appealing? Well, again, according to uh, author and psychiatrist Glyn Harrison, the storyline of the sexual revolution goes something like this. As I read it out, just see if you recognise parts of it that sort of ring a bell. Here's what the general storyline could be like. It says, For centuries, traditional morality had us, all of us, in its suffocating grip. Year after year, the same old rules, chained to the past, heap shame upon ordinary men and women and boys and girls whose only crime was being different. Enemies of the human spirit, these bankrupt ideologies befriended bigots and encouraged the spiteful. They nurtured a seedbed of hypocrisy and offered safe havens to perpetrators of abuse. No more. Changes here. We are breaking free from the shackles of bigotry and removing ourselves from the dead hand of tradition. Our time has come, a time to be ourselves, a time to be truly who we are, a time to celebrate love wherever we find it, a time for the human spirit to flourish once again. And if you people, you religious people, won't move out of our way, we're going to push you out of our way. Does any of that sound familiar at all? What are some of the themes that you notice in that storyline, some of the big ideas that came across? Any thoughts? Well, according to Harrison, that storyline of the sexual revolution had three parts. Uh, firstly, you had the heroic individual, the heroic individual that uh, looks inside themselves and finds their strength to be their own hero. That's individualism 101. And if you're a believer in individualism, the sexual revolution will appeal to you. Uh, secondly, there's that struggle for redemption, uh, the struggle for something better, the readiness to fight for what's right for the greater good. Uh, you may have seen that Benedict Cumberbatch uh, movie, The Imitation Game, uh, where he plays Alan Turing, that brilliant English mathematician who breaks the Nazi code machine. Now, Turing was gay and he was put in prison for it. And so there's the struggle to redeem people like Alan Turing uh, who are oppressed by the forces of conservatism and tradition. And finally, did you notice that that storyline claimed the moral high ground? You see, the sexual revolution isn't about being amoral, just doing whatever you want. It's actually a very moral story. They're claiming a moral high ground. Uh, the morality of freedom, freedom from oppression. The idea that people should be free from oppression. That's a key instinct for people in the West, isn't it? And so any story that paints innocent people as being oppressed 
That's always going to win converts. And that's one reason why the sexual revolution captured our culture. And so Christians at this point, I think we've got a problem. The narrative of the sexual revolution that's captured our culture, they've bought it hook, line and sinker, uh, which is why such a majority voted yes to same-sex marriage last year here in Australia and other places like Ireland. But it's more than just being outstoried and outnarrated. It's more than just the culture believing the story of the sexual revolution instead of the Christian story. You see, if you're now against uh, SSM, same-sex marriage, if you're for sex remaining within a heterosexual monogamous marriage, then what are you being pigeonholed as? How are you being viewed? What's the story that our culture is telling about us? The story is that if we're wanting to withhold sex, then we must be the oppressors. We're not just different. We're not just wrong about our views on sex. We're now evil. We're the ones standing in the way of freedom, of progress. We're standing in the way of human flourishing. If you're a Christian, then you're the one standing in the way. And of course, how should you treat oppressors? Well, you marginalise them. You try and silence oppressors. You try and push them out of the public square. They don't deserve a voice because they're evil, because they're bigots. And if you don't believe me, just try and get a speaker in to talk about biblical sexuality at your local, at your local university campus. And make sure it's well publicised. Or promote a pro-life event. See what happens then. Finally, it's worth mentioning another factor that's increasingly influencing public discussion and public worldview, and it's the rise of identity politics. And it's kind of strange, actually, because identity politics, it says that, well, you're not really a unique individual. goes a bit against individualism. You're not really a unique individual, different to every other human being on the planet. Your basic identity is the group you belong to which often involves things like your race, your gender, your sexuality, your religion. So if I was to be tagged by the identity politics, well, then I'm a straight, white, perhaps a little old-skinned Christian male. That's who I am. And I shall be judged, not as an individual, but by my group identity. I shall be judged as a straight, white, Christian male. And furthermore, some groups have more power in society. They're the oppressors. Because if you have more power, there's always going to be oppression. And some groups, especially minorities, have less power. They're the oppressed. They're the victims. Uh, so a researcher called Peter Curti, he describes identity politics in this way. He says, Identity politics is informed by the idea that human existence involves the exercise of domineering power the workings of which must be exposed and dismantled. So an individual either belongs to a majority, exercising this domineering power, whether consciously or unconsciously, or to a minority, bearing the impact of this power as a victim. The exposure and dismantling of this domineering power requires that the oppressor be silenced, so the voice of the oppressed can finally be heard. So you're either an oppressor 
if you're in the majority, or you're an oppressed person if you're in the minority of some description. Those are the only two groups you can fit into. And if you're the most evil of creatures, a straight white Christian male, you are automatically an oppressor. Now, those pushing identity politics don't even pretend to be concerned for their opponents. Uh, instead, their weapons of choice are things like hatred, public shaming, and they deploy these weapons to wage war on intolerance. Uh, if you remember back to the start of last year, the Bible Society produced some videos, or produced a video, having a discussion between a gay man, a liberal politician, I think a Victorian guy, I'll get his name in a moment, and a Christian uh, politician, Andrew Hasty, both from the Liberal Party, uh, both having a discussion about same-sex marriage. This was before the postal vote. And they were having it over Cooper's beer. Now, all of a sudden, those pushing identity politics were outraged. And so what do they do? If you remember back, there was a social media campaign, a social media campaign to boycott Cooper's Brewery. So there were viral videos of pubs uh, pouring out Cooper's beer down into the drain. Uh, beer drinkers were throwing Cooper's beer out into the garbage bin. All because Cooper's beer was featured in this discussion, a very polite discussion about same-sex marriage. According to identity politics, you're not allowed to question same-sex marriage. And so, social media shaming, forcing others to shut up, uh, and increasingly anti-discrimination laws. Uh, just ask Archbishop Porteous from Tasmania. So far from judging people as individuals based on the content of their character, identity politics judges people based on what group they belong to. And as we've seen over the past few years, and I'd say even over the past few weeks, this has really ominous implications for our society, for our democracy, uh, particularly for Christians, and the way Christians are seen by other minority groups, especially by sexual minorities. And so, finally, this leads to pressures on Christians. And haven't we seen this play out in the last week and a half or so? If you've been following the media... You might have seen the Sydney Morning Herald uh, kick things off with a headline. Uh, have a listen to this headline and see how honest and full of honest journalism it is. It says, Religious Freedom Review enshrines right of schools, religious schools, to turn away gay children and teachers. Isn't that a calm, nuanced headline? And what's the storyline? Oppressive religious institutions oppressing and victimising the gay minority. It's a powerful story. It's a powerful stereotype. And what's it leading to? It's actually affecting state uh, politics down in Canberra. There are actually calls to reduce uh, religious freedom, especially religious freedom for religious schools. Uh, already Labor is saying they'll throw away the freedom of religious schools to uh, be free to choose teachers who will practice and live out the Christian ethos of the school. Uh, indeed, both parties have now said they'll stop schools from discriminating against gay students, uh, which is interesting, and I understand there's controversy around that, but what if a gay student starts publicly advocating at school for LGBTI causes? What if they start doing this at a Christian school? If that law came in, then the Christian school would have no choice but to allow that student to do it. 
So here we are. Here we are in our cultural moment where the dominant narrative tells people that you feel what you feel you are is who you are. And that anyone who degree, disagrees with you, anyone who disagrees with your inner feelings, well, they're an oppressor. While we're not being prosecuted just yet, I think the pressure will mount on Christians. Uh, the public response in the media and the wider public to the Ruddock Review thus far hasn't been encouraging. Uh, yes, it's currently only aimed at Christian school, but it's unlikely to stop there. I mean, why would it? If Christians, if religion is an oppressive force, then we need to roll religion back further and further to the edges of society. We live in interesting times. And over the next two talks, we'll explore further how to respond to these times. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look around the world, as we look around our cities, our culture, Father, at times it can be a bit confronting, it can make us feel a bit unnerved. And yet, Father, we pray that we would remember that you are sovereign, that you are in control, and that the Lord Jesus promised to be with us always, even to the end of the age. So as we continue thinking about these topics, help us to think wisely and Christianly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much, Arcos. Um, thanks for your uh, questions, guys. We'll go through them uh, right now. And we'll, if we've got a bit of time after, we'll also open the floor so you haven't missed the boat just yet. All right, so if we could have those questions up on the screen. Time to put you on the spot. <laughs> Putting us on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Why does there appear to be a correlation between morally degraded young people and being charitable? Why do young people statistically volunteer, give to charity, and seem to care more than previous generations? Yeah, that's a very good question. I'd question the term morally degraded. I mean, from a Christian perspective, yes. I guess we can say that non-Christians uh, don't have God's morals. And yet, at the same time, I think young people being charitable and uh, believing in the sexual revolution, for them, it's actually a moral quest. So identity politics, for example, which is what uh, a number of young people, especially on university campuses, believe in, uh, that's actually a very strongly moralistic view. The view that there's oppressors, there's oppressed, and we need to free people. Uh, so I can understand if that's your worldview, if your view, worldview is divided into oppressors and oppressed, then being charitable, especially to the oppressed, to minorities, uh, that would make sense, according to that worldview. Uh, so I, I'm not sure young people statistically volunteer, give to charity, and seem to care more than previous generations. That's a very interesting one. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I do know, though, to maybe come at it from another angle, that studies have shown that if you're a regular churchgoer, you are much more likely to volunteer, give to charity, and care more than people that don't go to church. So that might not answer the second part of the question. Um, Maybe there's an idealism with young people, especially if they're caught up in this moralistic worldview. Uh, that might explain parts of it. Awesome. Thanks. We'll go to the next one then. 
Right. What are the benefits of these cultural movements for the church? Has it helped mm. us listen better to those struggling with identity, for example, being more compassionate with homosexual people? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think there's been benefits to the sexual revolution as far as Christians go. Uh, I, I think there's, there have been times throughout Christian history where sex has been looked down upon. Um, as if God gave Adam and Eve all the parts of their bodies, but somehow the devil gave them their genitals. That's, if I can put it as bluntly as that, there's been that sort of view. Uh, so a church father called Augustine, uh, back in uh, the 400s, he actually said that, you know, marriage is great, but you should only have sex uh, if you want to actually conceive and have babies, because marriage, uh, sorry, sex, that's part of the fall. So, yes, I think the sexual revolution brought that issue to the front, and as churches, I think we've had to think about it in a very deep and meaningful way. And I think we're doing a much better job now of seeing sex as the good gift that it is. So I think in that way it's helped. Has it helped us listen better to those struggling with identity? Yeah, I think so. Um, certainly when it comes to same-sex attracted people at my home church, we have a number of same-sex attracted people. Um, and I dare say that when I was first a Christian uh, in the mid-90s, I think churches would have struggled a lot more to understand and be compassionate and know how to uh, gather around and journey with people that have same-sex desires, for example. So I think this openness has kind of thrust it in our face, yes, but it's also forced us to look at what the Bible says and respond uh, in a Christian way. Awesome. I think that's all for the uh, texted questions. You haven't missed your boat, though. If you want to ask any questions, we've got people roaming around with microphones. Uh, so... Just raise your hand and you can really challenge Arcos. Put me on the spot. Yes, literally. Do it now or forever hold your peace. <laughs> Any? Yep. Thanks so much for what you shared so far. Looking forward, mm. perhaps this is a bit of a tough question, mm. do you see any trends of what maybe the next movement will be, where, where we're headed... Um, in society going forward rather than just now at the moment? That's a very good question. Um, hard to say. But I think, I mean, I think the biggest trend, the one that's got the most traction, uh, is the sexual revolution. I think that's really carrying things forward. Um, uh, certainly a few years ago, the whole idea of transgenderism, for example, would have been, you know, people would have been what? But now it's sort of coming more and more mainstream. Um, Yeah, look, it's, uh, I'd have to think about that one a bit. Um, let me get back to you. I'll think about it as I answer some other questions. Could I just ask something so similar, but yeah. if you still need to think about it, that's okay. Uh, if there are things that are going to come up in the future, mm. what should be the Christian's behaviour to that sort of thing? Should we be uh, actively against it? Should we be, I don't know, teaching? Should we, I don't know, sit on our hands? What should we be doing? Yeah, uh, talk three. Uh, tomorrow, we'll okay. uh, address that issue. Aha, that was a plug for tomorrow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Greg, yes. Yeah, a question. Um, a, lot, a lot of this seems to be very irrational. And why has it sort of caught fire in so many people like the media and, and that they seem to support it? Uh, um, is it? Is it because people with these views have pushed their way into positions of influence or, or what? How do you explain that the irrationality, it seems to me anyway, is um, not being refuted? 
Look, I think it is irrational um, from a Christian perspective. So the Bible would say, yes, all these views of rejecting God, uh, rejecting external authorities like your own body, uh, that is irrational. Um, But I think uh, radical individualism um, has caught such a hold on the imagination that there is a logic to it. So although when you look at it from God's perspective, it's irrational, like what do you mean you choose your own gender, like, you know, those sorts of things. But at the same time, I think there's a real logic to it, uh, an internal logic to it, um, which has taken hold of the imagination of those in, um, certainly in academia. Uh, You have all these gender studies departments, for example, uh, that really, queer theory departments, these really push these ideas. uh, And they don't stay at universities, they actually come out into society. Uh, So I think the uh, the, storyline and the other factors that I mentioned, radical individualism, the idea of this ancient idea of Gnosticism, rejection of the body, um, they have their own appeal, their own internal logic if you don't look at it too closely. And that internal logic, I think, has caught hold of the imagination and that's what's pushing a lot of this because it's being taken hold of by the media. Yep. The issues that you've been speaking about this evening, is it mainly a Western issue? Is it affecting the East, Eastern countries, in terms of all that you've been speaking about, the identity politics? and uh, That's a very good question. I think my understanding is that much, much less so than the West. So there's those underlying issues of radical individualism, uh, the, the, Gnostic, the Gnostic ideas, uh, I think they've taken hold a lot less uh, in other parts of the world, like Southeast Asia, uh, Africa, and, and the Middle East, than they have here in the West. Uh, so we're products of our culture uh, to large degrees, and the Western culture has been unique in many ways, very different, um, uh, often for the better, but also it's changed and it's morphed and it's gone this direction. Uh, and I don't yet think it's taken hold, from what I understand. Uh, of other parts of the world like it has here in the West. Thanks, Arcos. Is anyone else? All right, well, thanks so much, Arcos, for that. We'll get John up to finish up.